So we've all been thinking about what happens when we go back to normal. What it, what happens in the post-pandemic world when we go back to normal, and what we're slowly realizing to varying degrees, depending on how the pandemic actually changed our lives, is that there is no going back to normal. The world has just changed forever, and and we're all in various stages of denial about that. And so you know, what what happens? As we basically wake up and realize Welcome to Innovation and Leadership, where I interview uncommonly high achievers like top investment fund managers, elite special operations soldiers, startup CEOs who sold their companies for billions of dollars, pro athletes, Hollywood filmmakers, really as many different kinds of experts as I can. The whole idea is to hear how they did it and then what advice they have for the rest of us that can be applied to the organizations we're trying to grow and innovate. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed today's show. This is part two of our interview with Jeff Meyerson. Jeff, for anybody who missed part one, can you give us the quick overview again on Software Engineering Daily, the podcast and the book, and uh, and what you do? I run a daily software engineering podcast that is a technical interview with a software professional. It's five days a week. It's about an hour long. And I recently wrote a book about Facebook called Move Fast, How Facebook Builds Software. So I'm interested, who have been some of your interviews over these thousand interviews you've done on the podcast my favorites are with entrepreneurs who are inspiring forces in my life so you know alexander wang who's the ceo of scale comes to mind oren hoffman the ceo of SafeGraph, ben horowitz the one of the founders of andreessen horowitz you know those those three were really good ones oh i bet i'm such a fan of ben's books what what were some of your favorite parts of that interview I like him because he's a polymath. And so I asked him about, you know, how do you run an organization like Andreessen Horowitz? There's never been an organization like Andreessen Horowitz. And and so, you know, it's it's kind of like running a talent agency. It's kind of like running a creative studio. It's kind of like running a startup. It's kind of like running a private equity firm. It's like you can do anything with what they're doing. It's kind of like running a media company. So it's that company is is I, I I'm just continually blown away. It is interesting, actually. I don't know if you saw last year they have been posting more jobs for media professionals to come over there. I heard they have what 10, 20, 30, 40 people working on media now. Some 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 large team because of the the new adage. You know, we're a media company that monetizes through venture capital. <laughs> well, you know, you think about the way that for however many years, the media loved to talk about tech and tech was kind of the darling. And then lately, it's been like it's been dumped on like crazy, you know, and a lot of reporters have, have written some, you know, some pretty pointed pieces that, you know, some of them are a little light on facts. <laughs> that are not, not too friendly. And I think that they're saying, Hey, you know, we may need to take our, may need to take our future into our own hands instead of just hoping that the business press wants to be nice to us forever. You know? Well, the guy who, who I've been paying a lot of attention to, or I was paying a lot of attention to in the early days uh, of his content was this guy, Tristan Harris, who is, who is sounding the alarm about social media addiction and I was thinking a lot about his his protests, not literal like protest protests, but he's gone on a lot of podcasts. He's produced a lot of content, basically sounding the alarm 
that social media is like causing all these effects on our brain. And he has some ideas about how to re- how to rein it in. I, I'm I'm a little skeptical of those. But what I do like about what he's saying is we need to really be observant about how this stuff is affecting our brains. Maybe even like there should be a new uh, branch of, of psychology or psychiatry or something dealing with how technology is affecting our brains. Because, you know, I can say personally during the pandemic, like I'm spending all my time alone at home, like interfacing with my smartphone, interfacing with my laptop. I'm essentially immersed in technology for most of the day in a way that feels deeply unhealthy. <laughs> and, and, and there's nothing I can do about it. And I really like it also. That's, that's the other danger. It, 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 you know, when you're just sitting there ordering on DoorDash, chatting with your friends on Messenger, scrolling Instagram, watching YouTube, it just creates this weird sense of complacency, this baseline of complacency that is, you know, like you're just holding a magic wand and can summon anything at your beck and call. It's, there's something transfixing about it. And, um, and that I think should be scrutinized. I think there's a lot of hand wringing that is less appropriately directed, but 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 you know there's there's plenty of valid concerns. Yeah, I think for me, like I I would never really got into like Facebook or these kind of things, but LinkedIn LinkedIn was my addiction. I mean, because it was like I, I don't know, I, I consider it like backup email for business people. <laughs> right? When people switch companies, they still keep their LinkedIn, right? And, but like this, this year I just ended up deleting every social media app off my phone because I found myself like clicking on them without thinking about it. It was like, I just need that dopamine hit. Like, you know, I I pull my phone out of my pocket and I click on it without even thinking, do I want to sit here and scroll? And like now, you know, I just went dirt biking on Saturday. We went up the backside of the mountain that like Elta ski resort and Brighton ski resort meet at and did this like really hard mountain bike or dirt biking trail fell off my bike a bunch of times. But, but like I was going to post that to Instagram to a couple of my buddies from back home in Canada, you know, cause that's how we like trade our action sports <laughs> still wishing we were teenagers. Right. And, uh, but now I find myself like I'll download the app, post that and then take the app back off or I'll like go do it on a, on a desktop because I have found it habit forming in ways that impede like my real goals. And, and even with that, and even though I'm like making my kids have less social media in their life and stuff like this, I still think that the reporters, they like, they swing too far one direction or the other and they like over demonize to get views or something. Yeah. I mean, to some extent, this is, this is the role of journalism and, you know, you and I are are probably trained a little bit to be allergic to some of the, you know, the, the, the journalistic outrage because we're probably closer to the business community than the journalism community. And, uh, you know, the, the most vitriolic, nasty, and perhaps incorrect things are going to rise to the top of prominence. But that doesn't mean that we should categorically disregard the criticisms. That's fair. That's fair. Um, so you mentioned a couple of other folks before Ben Hurwitz. What, what did you enjoy about those interviews? So I mentioned Alexander Wang of Scale and Oren Hoffman of Safegraph. Alexander Wang 
founded this company scale. It's one of the fastest growing infrastructure companies. He's like 22 or 23. His company's worth like 8 billion. I admire Alexander because he found an opening in the market and just attacked it relentlessly. You know, he he's the epitome of a successful founder and, and, and a successful first time founder. He didn't really have any missteps as far as I can tell. So he's just a model, just a model founder. Aaron Hoffman is a guy who I emailed with and interviewed before I even started my, my uh, software engineering daily business. And I always found him very accessible. You know, wh- before, before you start a business, you, you kind of have all this white space that you don't really know what you should be doing. You don't know how to do it. You don't know what you're trying to do. You don't have a long-term plan. You don't have a short-term plan. It's just this big ball of confusion. And, you know, I found that a good substitute for dealing with that ambiguity is to look for people that you can this sort of like resemble you in some ways, like they have maybe similar fallibilities and and similar strengths, similar outlooks on the world. And, you know, I had been reading Oren's stuff on Quora. I had been reading his blog, which he's maintained since like 2004, 2005. I would just like go and read old blog posts of his and see how he was thinking when he was, you know, 28 or 30 or whatever. And, you know, I would find a lot of, a lot of searching and a lot of information that resonated with me. And so, you know, he, when, when, when I met him, when I was starting my podcast, he had just sold his company live ramp. Live ramp is now one of like, it's like a publicly publicly traded company or it was acquired by a publicly traded company that the company valued the live ramp assets so much that it changed its name to live ramp. If I have the history correct, which speaks to the power of the, of the business that he created which he only created, as far as I re- recall, after one or two or three pivots. And so here's here's a guy who has tremendous tenacity, and 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 you know, in the last six years that I've started my business, he he started this new company, SafeGraph, which has a, a really ambitious goal of basically democratizing data, and and I've watched him found and operationalize that business to to evaluation of can't remember hundred million plus dollars, you know, in the time it took me to like get my podcast to two people, <laughs> you know? So you just, you look at these kinds of people and you say, how do I get to a point where I can actually build a scalable software business rather than a struggling two person media operation? <laughs> you know, one of my friends that reminds me of that story, we had Alex Bean on the show from Divi. Uh, I think he'd raised maybe like 30 million bucks at the time. And then we had him back on like a year and some later and he had raised like maybe 250 million, right? And now another like year and some since then and uh, he just sold to Bill.com for two and a half billion, you know? And he's like, you know, he's late 30s, such a nice guy and similar experience for me to like hang out with him and see him and and then just see such rapid, rapid success of the... You know, they see certain opportunities, like when the PPP loans were going on, they got really involved in like being very helpful to people who weren't even their customers yet and like just made a bunch of smart moves and and just meteoric success because of it. Yeah, and, and it's accessible to everyone. It's the American dream. Well, maybe not everybody, but 
we're getting there, which is, you know, that's, that's, that's why I produce this kind of content. Too fun. Well, we've covered a few different subjects here. What's, what's another one of your soapbox things? What's something you really like to talk about? You know, something is, I, I can, I can, I can, I can share something that I've been thinking about lately, which may not be pro- profound or, or noteworthy, but you know, we've all been thinking about what are we going to do when things go back to normal? Like we, this is, this is the common phrase, right? Like, <laughs> Come on, Skip. Sorry, my cat. Just so we've all been thinking about what happens when we go back to normal. What what happens in the post-pandemic world when we go back to normal? And what we're slowly realizing to varying degrees, depending on how the pandemic actually changed our lives, is that there is no going back to normal. The world has just changed forever. And and we're all in various stages of denial about that. And so, <laughs> you know, what what happens? as we basically wake up and realize we've been asleep for a year, we've been waiting for somebody to come and knock on our door and tell us, okay, it's okay for everything to go back to normal now. That knock is never coming. The world has changed forever. And we're all confused. We're all having an identity crisis, as far as I can tell. So what are you going to do with that identity crisis? That's that's kind of a I don't know, maybe you could tell me what you're doing with your identity crisis. It's interesting, you know, because our, our main business, Greystoke Investments, we sell these like, you know, buy into our fund, we pay you a quarterly check for, for accredited investors, right? And that world is very much a like, take dudes golfing and, you know, try and get them to give you 250 grand or, or go buy them a steak dinner and hope they write you a check for 50 grand. That's just, you know, for, for a few decades, that's kind of how that private, the private placement world at that, at our level kind of works. Right. And, you know, there's much more openness to hop on a zoom call and, and show the pitch. And, you know, with the equity crowdfunding becoming legal, you know, that stuff was illegal for 80 years in this country to be able to publicly advertise a private placement. Right. And, you know, you've got companies like Fundrise that raise one to $2 million a day that day, that way, or origin investments raised $117 million in like 12 hours or eight hours uh, is kind of a notable thing in the space. And, you know, for like a lot of dudes who are used to wearing like fancy business clothes and going golfing, like the potential of becoming a tech company was just never taken seriously. And the pandemic has, has compounded the number of people that are taking that serious and learning what content marketing is and, and trying to figure out how to take an ACH payment over their website. Like very basic things. But if you're not from that world, like if you used to go and buying a guy a $50 steak and having him write a paper check, maybe send a wire transfer, like it's it's a new frontier. And so figuring out like, you know, for us, we're trying to do a mashup of a media company, a traditional like private equity style cash flow fund, real estate fund and a fintech business and and try to to make our own new creation there. So that's that's our identity crisis. Do you agree with my thesis? I think that I think that there are I think it depends what part of the economy you're in. You know, I think for founders, for people who are growing businesses, yes. You know, I think there's I think there's some blue collar work. I think there's some grocery checkers, you know what I mean, that you know, it just changes more. So do they watch it on Netflix or HBO Max or do they go to the movie theater? Some of that has changed. So I think that there's, I think there's a spectrum of how much it has changed. 
But but I agree of like there has been a significant there's been a significant acceleration that is not going to go back. There's you know how many people there are my mom's age that bought groceries online for the first time ever and are never going to walk around a grocery store again. They're only going to go do pickup for like the rest of their life, you know? Right. And so the transformative thing about that is not necessarily the grocery delivery itself, but what are the second and third order effects of that? Yeah. What do you think they'll be? Well, you know, for one, look at, look at, I mean, this is not exactly what I'm, what I'm describing, but it's in the same neighborhood. You look at San Francisco real estate and I walk around downtown in what used to be the busiest part of the city or my favorite part of the city, which is Market Street, where you have all these tall office buildings that are filled with startups at various stages of success. And now they're empty, cavernous, decrepit places surrounded by homeless people. It's it's tragic, but it's it, it, that's the state of the world that we live in. Like these office, what do we do with these office buildings? Like half of them are basically useless at this point more than half. So do we rezone them? Do we turn them into to, to residential real estate? Like, do we stock Amazon packages in them and turn them into micro fulfillment centers? Like, what are we doing? You know, you're a real estate guy. So like, maybe you've got some answers. But as far as I can tell, I see a massive oversupply in the space that we are using to do business. So certainly in the short term, I think that I think you're right. I think some will get converted to some will get converted to residential buildings that were never intended for it, you know. Um, I mean, there are there are some interesting parallels to 9-11 in New York when people said things like, there'll never be another building built over three stories and New York will never recover from this, you know. And there is like a 50-year trend towards urbanization. So I don't think that, I don't think that, you know, three, four years from now, anybody, I think those locations will be just as valuable as they were a year and a half ago, but, but maybe not used in the same way, right? When you think about, especially like a place like San Francisco, where the cost of living is so high and uh, remote workers that have figured out, hold on, I can keep my Bay Area paycheck, but I can live in Tahoe or I can live in Arizona or I can do something like this, right? Like that's, that's, you can't unsee that, right? I don't know, you know, We've got a guy, we got a guy coming on the show that's doing vertical farming, like urban vertical farming, you know, like they're growing the lettuce for the, for the restaurants two blocks away in buildings downtown, you know, like it, so, it's but th- but this is what I'm, this is what I'm talking about. Like, are we converting downtown premium real estate to vertical farmland? Is that where we're at? If we're there, that's great. It, but it's definitely like one of the second or third order side effects that I'm talking about here. Yeah, it'll it'll be interesting to see what happens. Um, but I think that some of the things you talked about here of like those organizations that, you know, those organizations that have that real estate, right? Looking at, looking at what can we do different, right? How can we take advantage of the opportunity? Like there's definitely going to be some winners and losers. Look at like, there's this developer in LA named Rick Caruso, who I love. He, he owns two, He's created two of the top 10 malls in the world. And like, while other people are saying like malls are dying and they're, then they're right. Bad malls are really dying. Like, like the Grove in LA has higher numbers than it's ever had, you know? And like, but he does things like where other malls were trying to outlaw 
get Uber outlawed, he's like ripping up sidewalks and making extra Uber locations. You know, I think he's the first mall in the world to accept Bitcoin. And like, not that I think Bitcoin's going to be this great thing per se, but but the fact of this forward looking thing of like, instead of trying to defend old turf, he's busy trying to invent the future. And this asset class that people think is useless and that everything's going to be sold online is doing better than ever. And so I think the innovators will do great and the dinosaurs will go away. That's my guess. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I, I would love to go hang out at a mall these days. I'll tell you that. <laughs> Be around a bunch of people. I, I mean, I grew up, I grew up playing playing magic cards at, at you know the mall, <laughs> and it. I have really fond memories of that. And actually, the death of the mall has felt kind of a tragedy because I had a lot of fun in malls growing up, and I, I, I don't know what to do about that because I, I like to me. Unless you're talking about like Stanford Shopping Center or like the mall that you're describing, like I get that there's these malls that are kind of like theme parks and, you know, they're in prime real estate locations. And it's very easy to get people to walk through them and do, you know, positive, you know, GDP activity. But like, you know, the mall in my neighborhood growing up that is basically a, a functional place where you do things that are now done on Amazon, that place makes as much sense as downtown real estate. It'll be interesting, right? You know, are those, you know, if people can turn those into outdoor malls that that have kind of proven the test of time, if you can have more experiential dining instead of just one more chain chain restaurant, right? If you can build apartments above the above the mall and put some Amazon last mile industrial space in the parking lot and some self-storage in the parking lot for the people who are living in the apartments above the mall that now has you know, instead of the gap, it has a Tesla showroom and an Amazon, an, an Amazon store. And like, to me, to me, I'm super interested in malls because they're so hated. Uh, the prices are down. So if somebody with some staying power, some vision can get a hold of the one, I mean, so many of them are in ideal locations, right? Where the highway meets the biggest neighborhoods. You know what I mean? Like location is great, but you got to reimagine it. Did you read that Amazon bought a bunch of malls? No, when was that? I don't know. It's like a, a year or two ago or maybe maybe longer. I'm pretty sure I read this or unless I dreamed it at some point. But I think Amazon bought a bunch of malls. So they'll do something with that. You know, maybe they'll turn them into warehouses. Like I would love to have malls that are integrated with virtual reality or augmented reality. That would be awesome. I'm sure we'll see that at, at some point. I mean, I think they're going to become more experiential, right? I had this guy on the podcast last week who has uh, movie theaters. And, you know, when like when you can stream so many of the best new movies on HBO Max or something, people are saying, like, why why ever go to a movie theater again? Right. But in his case, he has made it an experience like there's no children under two allowed. And in many of his, there's no teenagers allowed. Like he serves beer They They have a restaurant that actually has good food. And it's like, it's an experience. It's not just the commodity of where did I view the movie? It's like, this is a date for taking your wife. Amazon cannot provide that date for your girlfriend, right? And so he's created an experience that HBO can't, ma- can't match. So to me, the like, I, I agree with guys like Bruce Flatt from Brookfield Asset Management. If you know those guys, they're like $550 billion. And where they say things like, 
you know, bad, bad malls are going to die. Bad malls are going to die and great malls are going to actually benefit from those bad malls dying because yes, online shopping is here to stay and will probably continue to rise for many, many years to come. Um, but that experience of getting out of the house or that, like I've got two teenage daughters right now. I've got a 16 year old and a 13 year old. Okay. And they want to go someplace with their friends. They do not want to sit in the living room 10 feet from me while they do their shopping. It's like the mall is secondary to their social experience. Right. And, and mall that can create a great experience has the potential to get those girls to hang out, which they'll inevitably spend some money doing something. Right. I don't know. Yeah. Tune in, tune in next week to uh, mall talk. <laughs> right. Seriously. <laughs> Je- Jess and Jeff. <laughs> Seriously. Well, listen, congratulations on getting your book done. My most important question, cause I don't read books. I listen. Is there going to be an audiobook? Yes. Okay. Good. So congratulations on the getting the book done. Congratulations on the show. Uh, and uh, thanks for making time for this. Thank you for having me. By the way, who's your publisher for your book? So I will give a shout out here to the company Scribe Media. Have you heard of that company? Yeah, we, we've had the CEO. We've had Tucker Max on a couple times. Okay, great. I, I love Tucker Max. I grew up reading his stuff. <laughs> it's, it's vile. It's entertaining. It's groundbreaking. And uh, this company that he started is really something. Did, I assume he explained it to you on, yeah, yeah. on, on that show. So like, I mean... I will just say as a, as a consumer of his product, what he's built is, is something that I don't think exists anywhere else. But basically... Which, which version did you do? Which package did you do? I think I did the full package where basically you pay... I think I paid 25K and I got paired with an editor. They support you in the book design they support you in the writing process, the editing process, the production process, the Amazonization process, the, you know, audible, whatever book recording stuff. I actually did a little bit of that on my own because I have this kind of, you know, microphone at home and stuff. I probably should have gone to a recording studio and done that. I hate to say the audiobook is probably not as good as it could have been because I was kind of tired during some of it. I was recording it during the pandemic, like everything's going, going horrible. And I'm just like, oh God, I got to record this book that I wrote. Never, never put yourself in that position. But the company is, I would say the most valuable thing that they offer, and this is not advertised and they probably wouldn't want me advertising it, but when you're struggling and and in any good book writing process, I assume that the authors go through struggle. I certainly did. There were points like halfway through the book, the first iteration of the book was terrible. And I, and you know, my editor basically came, came Hal, Hal, I think Hal Clifford is his name. They paired me with this amazing editor, but he told me, he was basically telling me like, look, this book is just, I mean, he didn't say this explicitly, but in so many words, he said, look, this book is awful. Like just (laughs) please, please write a better book, you know? (laughs) And, and that was what I needed to hear. So, you know, just getting... (laughs) Getting that kind of encouragement from from somebody who had seen a lot of books and had seen a lot of successful books, and the fact that the company is is headed by Tucker, who has who is a sensationally good, and you know he's good friends with a lot of authors, so he knows what makes good content. He knows the connection between books and social media, and go to market strategy and podcasts, and they and then I paid the additional fifteen k to basically you know have them pimp you to podcasts and have them like pimp you to PR outlets and you know, give you a sense of what you should actually be doing as a responsible author that's trying to build a personal brand. As far as I can tell, their business is unmatched. I mean, they produced David Goggins's book, 
which is like maybe the biggest book in the last five years. I, I like Tucker. Well, everybody, make sure to go get your own copy of Move Fast. And Jeff, thanks for doing this. Thanks for having me. Okay, write another book. We'll have you back on the show. That'll never happen. <laughs> Bye, everyone. <laughs>